Welcome to the second quarter conference call for GWK Investment Management. This call represents the views and opinions of GWK Investment Management and does not constitute investment advice, nor should it be considered predictive of any future market performance. On the call today is Harold Kotler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer, Bill Sterling, Global Strategist, and Jim McCarthy, Partner and Director of Private Client Services. As always, I'll turn it over to Harold for some opening comments. Thank you, Jim. Hopefully, people have received the quarterly letter, and maybe you should take some time and read it, because I think one of the positions I'm taking <clears throat> is that over the next two years, uh, there's so many variables that it's almost unpredictable. So what I'm suggesting is if you go out to 2024 and we suggest that maybe the economy will go back to pre-pandemic levels of 1% or 2% growth, then seem, things seem to have make some sense, i.e. why interest rates haven't spiked and why the stock market seems to be doing okay and uh, that uh, the United States growth will be modest. But I think it's very important as a backdrop as we discuss the next part of the session to see that we're in a what is an extraordinary complicated, difficult, uh, aberration that is totally unpredictable, but we'll do our best. Thank you, Harold. Um, the first topic we're going to discuss, and I'll give this over to you, Harold, is inflation. You know, since our last call uh, at the end of the first quarter, inflation has become a hot topic. Uh, the CPI and PPI numbers have come in hotter than expected each month and has stirred a debate of whether inflation will be transitory and will subside in the coming quarters. Uh, the bond market seems to be buying into this. So you know, the first part of this is, are you surprised that the 10-year Treasury is down almost a half of a percent yeah. over the past couple months after peaking at 1.75, um, you know, in you know, in line with all these inflation numbers coming in higher than expected? Yes and no. So I'm really surprised that the interest rates have dropped this low, but I'm not surprised that the inflationary number is being modest, uh, modified, and uh, I do believe that inflation won't get out of control. And if it did, it'd be a very short period of time. But I am surprised that the long rate and the short rate have reflected uh, uh, even lower levels. Um, as to inflation, I think it's very important to understand that uh, the difference between cost push and demand pull. Uh, this is uh, any inflation we have here is because of excess demand based on tremendous savings and availability of money and pent up demand that has occurred during the pandemic. And of course the supply chain is choked and, and, and there is some price increases uh, all along the chain. But I believe it's temporary and the market sees right now it's saying it's temporary and it's not putting it into a long-term um, um, expectation and that's why interest rates have not spiked but we'll see uh, there's there are reasons to worry about inflation but I think the reasons uh, will be diminished over time I think the the government spending and the availability of capital and, and the stimulate of the government's social and political and monetary policy is probably peaking right this moment so we're seeing the extreme 
of what price increases might be in the next six, nine months. Um, so, but what happens if the transitory story is wrong and inflation persists? Do you, do you think rates move sharply higher? Uh, could the economy even sustain higher interest rates and high inflation for an extended period? Well, given the level of debt the U.S. government is now uh, assuming, as also throughout the whole system, uh, there will be no dis uh, discretionary spending at the government level if that were to occur. I mean, we just cannot afford higher interest rates. We can see how the housing industry uh, stops uh, growing with a small increase in mortgage rates. With prices this high, and it's really super sensitive to interest rates and mortgage rates. So I think the, uh, there is very little room for interest rates to go substantially higher. That doesn't mean it can't go to 1% or 2% to 2.5%, but, I mean, that's not high. I mean, that's still within a reasonable range. Uh, so I do not think that we're looking at explosion of interest rates. Um, so I, 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 I think you have to trust that the people put down the Fed and always saying they're wrong, and... But I think they don't want to be early. Uh, they know that given the monetary and fiscal policies, if this thing ever turned and we ended up in a really a, a low or even recessionary economy, uh, they have very little at their, their disposal to turn this thing around. So they're going to be late rather than early. And I think that's probably going to be the policy. And they may not be late. They may be on time. They may be right. Everybody poo-poos them, and they always say that this or that. Uh, he's got a lot on his plate, but I think uh, right now I, I'm not worried about interest rates going up. And that's one reason we'll talk about later, whether the stock market will continue to rise. Thanks, Harold. Uh, next question is for Bill. So, you know, along with inflation, markets are awaiting the Federal Reserve to announce the tapering of their $120 billion monthly purchases of treasuries and mortgages. You know, the first time we dealt with this concept of tapering was in 2013, and the markets had a sharp reaction when it was first announced. So, Bill, do you feel the Fed will do a better job of communicating this than they did in 2013? Is the market prepared, or could this announcement be a catalyst for rates to move higher? Well, Jim, I, I think they've already done a better job. They've, they've tried to make this whole topic almost uh, you know, more boring than watching paint dry to be honest, so that the market sort of knows it's coming, but won't be surprised. Um, and I think most market participants are penciling in something like early next year for a very gradual taper to start. So the surprise would be if they brought that forward, um, you know, earlier into this, uh, you know, second half of this year, but um, they, they certainly have been at pains to indicate that they, they're taking a very patient, gradual approach and back in mid-2013, you had a huge spike up in rates um, as the tapering fears uh, you, you know, were generated. Uh, this time around, as you were just discussing with Harold, it's been the opposite. Uh, the, mark, the bond market is, uh, I think, very aware of what the Fed's thinking, and that's helped stabilize rates. So on top of buying the $120 billion per month, um, the Fed also reinvests proceeds and interest uh, from the current portfolio that they hold. So. When thinking about tapering, I mean, is it feasible that the Fed can continue to be a factor for many, many years to come? Well, I think in the sense of their balance sheet um, staying high, almost certainly the answer is yes there. Uh, I think the latest number I saw was the balance sheet was $8.2 trillion. 
and right ahead of the pandemic, it had been a little under $4 trillion. So there's this huge surge to deal with the, uh, the public health emergency. Um, but if you look at the history um, of how they managed QE after the 2008-2009 crisis, um, they had three rounds of quantitative easing, that is, additional asset purchases continuing until 2014, and they didn't even begin to do what's called quantitative tightening, which is to actually reduce the balance sheet a bit, and it was done very slowly. That happened for about a two-year period starting in August 2017. So if history is any guide, we're going to have this big balance sheet around for a long time, but it, it's something, basically other countries in the world have done this for years. The balance sheets in places like uh, Europe or Japan are much higher as a percent of GDP than in the U.S., and uh, so the U.S. is really not an outlier in that, uh, in that respect. Thanks, Bill. Um, we're going to move on to the equity markets, and I'll, I'll direct this to Harold. So we've had a very strong first half of 2021. The markets are up double digits after a strong uh, 2020, but investors seem to be feeling that valuations are stretched. Um, do you think the markets have pulled forward the strong economic growth that is expected in the second half of the year? I mean, should valuations adjust? And I guess, could earnings growth that we see um, in the next six months outpace market performance? I think we're going to have, for uh, first time in a long time, top-line growth. I mean, a lot of the earnings of the last few years has been because of M&A or, you know, taking care of the expense side of the, of the income statement. <clears throat> but I think we're going to have top-line growth. I think companies, what's been really pulled forward is the ability to manage a business and understand the new world and the new economy and how to succeed. And for those companies that have been able to do that, I think they're going to have tremendous success. And unfortunately, the pandemic has created a necessity, as is often the time in crisis, to really reinvent yourself. And many businesses have done that. So I don't think the market is overvalued. Giving, uh, I think it's been an incredibly healthy correction. It's been rotational, and uh, many stocks have going through the 20-30% decline, and um, some of the averages haven't, but you know, the averages are <clears throat> held up by maybe a few names. But the truth is, be, underneath the averages, there's been a healthy correction. And if earning multiples are 20 times or less than 20 times, with interest rates at these levels, the, the stock market is cheap. Because if the alternative is to buy treasuries a 1.3% return, uh, or stocks at 20 times, which is a 5% return, uh, it's a compelling argument to buy stocks. So I think both things are true, Jim. I think companies are doing better. I think they'll continue to grow. The winners will continue to be winners. And it's a new economy. And uh, I think it's a stock pickers market over, over the next few years. And I think it's a really healthy place to be an investor, uh, both here and abroad. And we can talk about being abroad later, because I think Europe and Asia is half the valuation of the United States. And although they didn't do as much stimulating, uh, they're rotationally going to be succeeding uh, at some point after we do. So I think the world markets look very, very compelling. 
Thanks, Harold. And on that note, we'll switch over to the international markets. So, Bill, could you give us an update on international and emerging markets? Um, they've lagged the U.S. this year. But what are we seeing in regards to the Delta variant, the pace of vaccinations, how it is, a, and how is it, is it affecting economic growth across Europe, Japan, and, and emerging markets? Uh, yeah, well, you know, they've lagged um, this year partly because the U.S. did so much aggressive fiscal stimulus, as Harold just uh, indicated, uh, maybe three times the size of the economy relative, to, say, to what we saw um, in Europe. Um, but, you know, in the long run, that could be good because they won't have a fiscal cliff or fiscal drag issue uh, facing them in the next few years either. And as Harold said, you may get a rotational pattern of global growth where you could see, um, you know, growth in overseas growth pick up even as U.S. growth slows a bit. Um, in terms of the pace of vaccinations, um, that's been kind of an interesting story because, uh, you know, it's well known that uh, developed markets, the richer countries, have um, had more successful vaccine rollouts generally than the emerging markets. So the percent of adults vaccinated now in developed markets is approaching 60%, um, whereas in EM, it's only about 25%. And of course, that um, makes a difference in terms of how fast economies can reopen and so on. But the Eurozone, which was lagging the US, has actually picked up a bit ahead of the US now. Europe, uh, I mean, the UK has something like 92% of its adults are either vaccinated or have natural immunity due to having been infected. Um, so I think there's a good case you could see double-digit growth um, in Europe um, and potentially even Japan in the second half of the year, uh, even as the U.S. growth rate uh, moderates a bit. Um, and emerging markets, of course, are very different. Some of the Asian countries now are struggling uh, you know, with, with the Delta variant. Um, but, you know, the good news that uh, appears to be the case on the Delta variant is vaccines are effective, especially in um, terms of uh, reducing, you know, hospitalizations and fatalities. So hopefully this concern about the Delta variant turns out to be, you know, just a bump in the road, whereas, the, you know, the, I think the world's going to uh, produce something like 11 billion vaccines uh, this year. So even though the logistics of distributing that are difficult, um, you, you're going to see, you know, more and more control of the pandemic as vaccinations roll out everywhere. You know, I'm just sure. making uh, valuations are, um, you know, the Schiller PE, for example, is mid-30s in the U.S., about 21 times in the EFA markets, the international developed markets, and about 16 times in emerging markets. So there is, um, you know, certainly an attractive valuation um, argument uh, that suggests that, you uh, international equities can be a pretty good complement to your domestic holdings. Uh, thanks, Bill. So just uh, sticking with overseas, you know, China's economy has continued to grow almost 8% in the second quarter after 18% at the beginning of the year. Um, and, and they've dealt with COVID much better than the rest of the world, yet their equity markets have struggled this year. Um, has this been driven by the recent government intervention in the tech markets, or is it more tied to just the world's struggles with COVID and vaccinations? You know, well, I think the tech market interventions, uh, the anti-monopoly regulations are certainly a, a factor, um, particularly with the large megatech growth stocks uh, in China. Um, but there's also been, um, the Chinese have not done as much stimulus in this crisis than they did, um, you know, a decade ago. Uh, and in fact, they've been reining credit growth in, trying to make sure that they, um, you know, don't have uh, sort of any problems in their credit market, particularly the real estate market in China. So they've had, you know, so-called negative credit impulse where the rate of growth of credit 
has slowed. So their economy's run rate is actually probably a bit slower than the U.S. You know, over the course of this uh, entire year. Um, but you know, many of the uh, initiatives they're taking, um, for example, just to improve the competitiveness of their industries. You know, Harold and I were talking about this the other day, and he said, in many ways, it's really brilliant that they they don't want to go the Russian route where there are ten oligarchs who control the whole economy. I think they were a little bit concerned about that scenario. Um, they do want a um, a very competitive um, economy, especially in the technology area, and so they're using this uh, period right now to uh, make sure they have competitive markets, which in the long run uh, could serve them very well. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, they have lagged this year, as you've noted, um, but it's been, you know, partly because they're taking sensible policy measures that uh, I think put them in good standing for long-term growth and competitiveness. Also, let me add, if you don't mind, Jim, you know, what frustrates me about the West is they see, them, we see ourselves as the holy grail and policies uh, that are not consistent with democracies really get uh, slammed. Uh, the Chinese understand what the needs are of the people. They understand that they have a big enough people that want a better life, but they also understand of central control. And it may not be the way the West would do it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work for them. And I think Bill and I agree that uh, China knows what's best for themselves, and they know how to do it. They they pulled in Macau and gambling, and they're going to pull in the oligarchs, and they're going to continue to rein in and manage that economy. And uh, people think central planning is a bust because they look at the Russian uh, experience, which was totally a bust. But the Chinese le learn from the Russians, and they know what not to do. And uh, I think it's an amazing process to watch as they develop a whole new way of governing. And rather than diminishing them, we should really respect that it's working for them. And it's not ours, but it's theirs, and respect it. So, you know, there's, I always get frustrated that people, you know, talk about what we do versus what they do, as if we have the answers to everything, which clearly we can see we don't. Thanks, Harold. Uh, so back to the U.S. Um, and, and obviously the topic of the day um, recently is the Delta variant. Um, you know, it, obviously it's hard to predict how this plays out, but now that the U.S. economy has basically reopened, are you concerned that this could be a major setback to the recovery? So here's a, a different way of looking at the variant. It may keep interest rates lower, longer, have the recovery longer, slower, which is best for the U.S. economy. Rather than having the hype that we worried about in the beginning of our conversation, it may delay some consumption, travel, entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. And it may therefore allow it to modestly improve at a slower rate, which will keep inflation lower and extend their, this this recovery longer. So it's a, it's a perverse way of looking at the variant because no one wants to have a variant. On the other hand, it may be helping the economy. In the end, uh, as Bill suggests, is another hiccup 
and uh, it, it's not going to be plugged into an evaluation metho metho methodology. It's going to be simply an event that we have to deal with. Thanks, Harold. Um, so over to Bill, I wanted to uh, ask, you know, recently, really since the inflation uh, discussion picked up in April, so has the discussion about the labor markets and the, and the lack of workers. Um, many jobs that were normally minimum wage are commanding much higher hourly pay, and some states have been pulling back on the unemployment benefits to get people back into the workforce. Has the U.S. ever experienced anything like this before? And, and do you expect wages to come down after these unemployment benefits expire and more workers come back into the labor market? Uh, you know, Jim, well, clearly, as Harold indicated at the beginning of the conversation, we don't have a template for any kind of um, understanding of an economy that went through such a steep shock in a short period. It was a two-month recession, but the third deepest in the entire country's history. Um, and, of course, we've had enormous uh, stimulus on the way out. Um, so there's there's really not a playbook for this. Uh, Fed Chair um, you know, Jerome Powell has gone to great lengths to try to explain to people that we need to be extremely humble uh, in terms of prognostication about how this plays out, which, uh, you know, certainly is, is Harold's point uh, as well. So um, I do think it makes perfect sense that you're going to, you know, potentially see um, after September when more kids are back in school, after some of these extraordinary benefits uh, expire, uh, you may get a, a surge of more workers uh, going back into the labor market, um, so some better employment numbers, um, but that could also have a dampening effect on, you know, wage growth that people have been concerned about or the, the, the various shortages businesses have reported in terms of, uh, you know, getting quality workers. But, um, you know, I think we're all going to be um, involved in a, a, a big experiment here to see how an economy normalizes after a shock this uh, this big, but uh, you know, as Harold indicates, we can probably be pretty confident uh, after you know 18, 24 months or so, things will be a lot more normal. Uh, it's just this transition period truly is unprecedented. Thank you, Bill. Uh, we're going to move over to politics, and the first question is for Bill here. You know, what do you feel the impact will be going forward on having a former Fed Chairman Janet Yellen as the Treasury Secretary? Um, well, there might be some people worry a little bit about, does this mean that the Treasury will be able to put more pressure on the Fed uh, in some ways? Um, I don't think that's likely. Every indication we've had is that the Biden administration um, kind of respects the, the Fed's independence, um, maybe even a little more than the previous uh, administration where there was uh, you know, so much overt criticism of uh, Jerome Powell uh, and, and the president himself saying what he wanted to happen with interest rates. So I think that's a rather minor issue. Thanks, Bill. A final question for Harold. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on the Biden administration and bipartisan politics through the first six months here of the new administration? <laughs> well, there, there hasn't been bipartisan po politics and uh, unfortunately, very, you know, very frustrating. Um, I, I think some of Biden's policies were over the top, sending money to the states, which was totally unnecessary, but for maybe New Jersey and Illinois. And uh, so the, I could be very critical of Biden's policies in some degree, and then I'm sure he's been frustrated by the Republican Party to 
and just stand up against everything he wants to accomplish. So it's, it feels like it's back to um, party politics and no, no working together. And it's sad. Um, and it's, uh, I, it, it, um, um, I don't know where it all ends. Um, but, um, it, it's not healthy for the economy. And, um, we just, we have to live with the existence of the games he got, these guys want to play. And I think, I can't imagine anybody happy with the way government is working. And um, we just have to live with it. And, it, and I think Bill has suggested in the past that this might, uh, uh, he wrote a lot of Biden's uh, infrastructure bills and, and other hopes and dreams that the Democrats have uh, to force things through government. We'll see. It's um, certainly tax reform, which we haven't talked about, which we all think about all the time, where that is on the uh, template and what may happen, what may not happen. It's very hard to plan. I mean, for oneself, for one's own portfolio. Uh, that's why I think you just have to invest, diversify, and just wait it out. But clearly, uh, we don't know what future tax policies will bring which will have some impact on how to think about investing. But it's, it's almost impossible to do all that stuff in this moment. And uh, we just we just have to you know, play one day at a time and see how this all works through. It's very frustrating. And, and, and I would use the word sad uh, that we can't, that the government can't work better. But it doesn't. It's not. Thanks, Harold, and thank you, Bill. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening this quarter. This concludes our call. As always, please do not hesitate to reach out with further questions. Thank you.